In today's episode of VFM, we are talking to Rona Train from Hyman's Robertson and what value for money means to her. Welcome to the 18th episode of VFM, The Pensions Podcast. I am delighted to be joined, as ever, by my co-host, Darren Phil. Darren, how's the weather over there in Blighty? It's been a bit up and down, to be honest, Nico. <laughs> um, you know, it wasn't, the, the sun wasn't always shining uh, for the coronation. Um, but Sunday was a lovely day and had a lovely picnic to celebrate the coronation on the castle lawn um, here in Tunbridge. But unfortunately, I forgot the sun queen. Um, but hey, hey ho, um, and 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 it's it's great to be joined by you again, Nico, uh, Nico Aspinall, uh, consultant extraordinaire, um, <laughs> still on holiday, I hear, in France. Yeah, well, it's a sort of working holiday. Um, so uh, yeah, I've been digging up floors. I've been uh, going and finding wood treatments, um, translating. I now have a lot of uh, French uh, vocabulary around uh, wood treatment. So uh, yeah, no, it's it's been beautiful weather as well until today when I woke up and it was raining. Um, and I knew that it was time to do some digging of floors again. <laughs> <laughs> and who have we got today, Nico? Well, we're delighted to be joined today by Rona Train from the consultancy Hyman's Robertson. Welcome, Rona. Thank you very much. And, and, how's, nice the we- with you. and, and how's the weather where you are, Rona? Today it is absolutely beautiful. It's ah. been absolutely horrible. It's been raining constantly for the last two or three weeks, but we have sunshine um, and warm temperatures today, so it's beautiful. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, I'm going to um, a great escape festival in Brighton um, mm. later this week uh, with Andy Tarrant um, um, and Andrew Young uh, of TPR fame. So we're hoping it's going to be um, warm and sunny down in Brighton um, as the weekend approaches, although the forecast is looking a bit variable. So There's much of that outside, Darren. Um, a lot of it's inside, but it's um, lots mm. of different venues. Um, you get a wristband and you can go to lots of different venues around Brighton to see new and up and coming bands. So it's a it's a, it's a great few days. Um, so, you know, there are venues that have bands on outside. Um, but it's more the walking in between. It's like a, rather than a pub crawl, it's like a band crawl. <laughs> Sounds great. Sounds good. Sounds it good. Does. Yeah, it's not bad, not bad. Um, and so, Rona, you're currently a partner and DC consultant specialising in DC governance, investment and communications. Um, we'll talk a bit more about how you got into pensions um, a bit later. But um, as always, we'll start with the news. And, and what have you got for us, Rona? Okay, well, I'm, I've I've gone so, so slightly outside the pensions world, um, although I will pro- I promise I will bring it back into the pensions <laughs> world. And I, I'm going to talk about wine this morning. So um, there was a really interesting article on the BBC website about the wine growers of Australia um, and how they're suffering from climate change, and they see climate change as the biggest threat to their business um, in the sort of 100 150 years that they've been been running it. Now, for anybody that doesn't know, um, Australia are the fifth largest exporter of wine in the world. 
um, but they are having a real issue with um, very hot and dry years and then years of flood. So what that's doing is it's messing with the flavours um, and the quality of wine and uh, all the wine buffs on there, I'm sure, will be um, quite, uh, um, well, not very happy to hear that, they, that, that that impact is coming. Um, there's also knock-on effects of that with things like um, the growing seasons coming forward. So that has impact on the logistics and the infrastructure. Um, and it's um, it's impacting a lot of the major wines that we drink across here, the UK. So Sauvignon, um, Chardonnay and Pinot have all been, have, have all been impacted. But what I, what I liked from the article was that the wine growers were seeing it as an opportunity to rebrand and to use some of the up and coming grapes. Some of them I hadn't heard of, like Fiano and Nero Davola. Um, <laughs> but these are hardier grapes um, and they require less water. And they're also moving some of their vineyards south. So what I, what I thought was that this was really interesting because they're also working to reduce their own carbon emissions. And one of the wineries that was interviewed, um, they'd slashed their carbon emissions to net zero. They've been using solar power, they've been using heat, and they've been um, been reducing waste. So what, what it's meant is that um, they're actually looking at opportunities from climate change as well as the threats. And I think to... Uh, at the moment in the UK, where we've been looking at climate change in terms of investment, a lot of it has focused on the risks of climate change. Um, but I think that was a really interesting article, which looked at the opportunities as well. And I think that's one of the areas we need to keep focusing on is, you know, what can we benefit from um, as climate change happens? Yeah, yeah. And I suppose our palates are going to have to adjust. We're, we're going to have uh, different grapes grown in our Australian and our Californian and I dare say even our French wines and French varieties grown in southern England and all of that kind of stuff is going to, going to change what we think wine means, won't it? I think that's absolutely true. Um, but I think the, what they were saying in the article was that a lot of the tastes are quite similar. So it's mm. almost going to be sort of moving us across over time. Uh, and our expectations, as you say, will change. I went to, um, I was lucky enough um, earlier this year to go on a tour um, of a vertical farm, mm. um, which uh, again was, uh, it was very much in the test phase, but they did have uh, big plans to expand it. And that showed how, um, you know, people are thinking about adapting and, um, you know, not just seeing climate change as a risk. Um, it's obviously a huge risk, but from an investment point of view, there is a, an opportunity to to make the planet more sustainable. Um, and and I have to say, tasting the produce, it was actually a lot nicer than the stuff that you would typically get from a um, off a supermarket shelf. Mm. Um, so you know, the, the the tasting aspects of this don't necessarily mean 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 need to go backwards. We could actually sort of improve the the taste and quality of food as well. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So, what Thank have you, you got, Nico? Uh, yeah, well, I've got. I guess it's more of a press release, maybe than uh, than a news item. But um, so there is a professional pensions headline: uh, "Standard Life Expands Master Trust Offering Retirement Section." 
um, which uh, I think is about essentially saying here is a section which uh, caters for people, uh, you know, post retirement. So really post uh, pension commencement lump sum um, into that partially crystallized or fully crystallized kind of phase. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so that the, they would sort of match up with single employer trust DC sections um, and give them a kind of safe harbor or a, a place that those trustees can sort of point people towards. So I, I don't think it's a new idea, um, but uh, possibly having a section dedicated to this maybe is, I don't know. Um, but uh, yeah, I, it was, uh, I, I, I think it's a sort of, it's the moment, isn't it? When uh, I think a lot of providers, a lot of master trusts are going to be talking about decumulation over the next 12 months or so. I suspect there'll be a few kind of releases um what what isn't clear here is that you know is there something exciting happening under the hood or is this really a kind of a transition out of one kind of arrangement into another or is there is there something else going on here so um yeah no interesting to note yeah and i think um rona will know um about this far more than i do but i think that single employer trusts are a bit behind when it comes to offering at retirement solutions and I think that, um, you know, signposting or or having an offering whereby um, trustees of single employer trusts and employers are operating single employer trusts can signpost or put people into, you know, good at retirement solutions is probably going to become the norm. But Rona, do you have any views on that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, we've we've already got quite a quite a lot of clients who have a post retirement master trust, and and it's quite interesting because the master trust obviously has to be appointed by the employer yeah. rather than the trustee, um, but particularly um, you know where you have something like target date funds in the pre retirement, uh, you can get a really smooth to and through retirement mm. um, into the master trust and without buying and selling and that for me is is, is sort of one of the real benefits of it but I think you know it, it for me being in a, a post-retirement master trust where you benefit from the ongoing governance you and, and particularly lower fees I think is a is a really good thing um, the ongoing governance from the company slash trustees point of view is quite an interesting one. Um, and the trustees um, that I work with that have that arrangement in place are already looking at the, the target date funds in, in the pre-retirement. But as they have to look a little bit um, more about the governance of the master trust arrangement um, as part of the, the ongoing governance there as well. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I think it is something that you can't just set and forget. That you do have to be looking at the looking at that on an ongoing basis mm. um so if you're actually signposting members towards it but say it's an option not say it's the it's the norm um that that's uh, that that's where you have to be quite careful yeah and um we've seen some developments in australia um whereby um, australian supers have to set out what their uh, retirement income strategy actually is um, and obviously that's at the sort of master trust level rather than the single employer uh, trust level. But do, but do you think the government should regulate to like force single employer trustee schemes to, you know, offer or at least signpost uh, um, a good retirement solution? Yes. <laughs> that's an easy one. <laughs> it's, it's, it's as simple as that. I mean, it's it's the one area that really 
um, there isn't sufficient regulation in at the moment. Um, and, you know, a lot of members are just coming up to retirement and being thrown out into, you know, either taking all their money as cash and putting it in the bank or into a retail world where they really have no clue what's what's happening. Um, I, I don't think it has to be a master trust. I think, you know, that there are other options out there. Yeah. Um, but definitely sort of putting it into some kind of well-governed um, post-retirement option, uh, I think it, w- it will be something. And I think the other thing about it is that is that run up to retirement, uh, because the, the the member journey, as it were, in the in the run up to retirement in schemes varies enormously at the moment, mm. um, and we certainly believe that uh, there's much more needed in terms of not advice. And you know, people use the term advice. Uh, it's not regulated advice people need there, but it's proper what I would call financial coaching. Yeah. Um, to, to get them on the right track because we've you know trustees have spent years getting the accumulation pot there and then just basically throwing people out. Um, And there are, you know, there are some schemes that have worked um, sort of very successfully in doing that um, and in matching their own um, pre-retirement options into into post-retirement as well. So um, the JP Morgan scheme is one that, that, you know, we've heard a lot about has done that, has worked with the the post-retirement provider to offer the same funds as as in pre-retirement. So, yeah, I mean, there's lots more that needs to be done in that area. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think uh, DWP have said they're going to be consulting at some point uh, this year. So that's an opportunity to to make some of these points. Um, so, I mean, so for me, just to just to finish off, because we, we can look to the States actually as, as quite an innovative place here because they have uh, recently regulated on this. Um, and They have the Secure Act, which essentially safe harbours uh, certain forms of provision post-retirement. Um, and one of the things that they've safe harboured is providing an annuity within the the trust itself. Um, so not as 100%. Um, I don't mm-hmm. think that's at all the expectation, but something like 20 to 40% um, is safe harboured. So we don't have a culture of safe harbour here in the UK. Um, but I do think that, you know, there'll be a lot of people who are nervous, even if it's regulated that you have to, um, that the individual members couldn't come back and say, you know, you you pointed me in this direction that is quasi advice however you frame it um and when you know i did, i managed to run out of money before i was 80 or whatever those kind of bad circumstances are so so it, i'm all for that kind of compulsion of the the stick but i think there is a carrot of safe harbor that we should culturally include in dc uh, in the uk hey, there's definitely um you know um uh, not the appetite for things like safe harbours in the UK. I think that, um, you know, Treasury and others are very, very worried about implicit liability um, that the government would be taking on. Um, but I think you're right, Nico, that if we can provide these sort of safe pathways, um, building on what the FCA already is doing through the investment pathways uh, stuff, then, you know, that hopefully would encourage schemes to do more. Um, and do more to to help their customers. So 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 one of the things that Rona uh, mentioned was governance, um, and the importance of good governance, well across the piece, but in particular um, at at retirement. And I was reading um, a professional pensions piece, um, which was talking about TPR considering registration system for trustees, um, with the regulator saying that such a system could help it monitor standards of trusteeship. Um, and and I think quite often the debate gets conflated uh, between sort of standards and professionalism. 
Um, and what I mean by that is that, you know, um, there is a there is a view that every uh, trustee board should have um, a professional trustee as a representative. Um, I don't necessarily think that's right, um, although I am supportive of the professionalisation of trusteeship. Um, however, I think it's more important that the, the trustee board as a whole um, has the appropriate sort of standards and training and things like fit and proper tests um, to make sure that people are you know, equipped and able to, to do the job effectively. Um, but just picking up on the registration point, um, you know, I can't really believe that we're, we're in 2023 and we're in a situation where, you know, the regulator doesn't fully um, understand or have a record of its regulated community. Um, <laughs> so I think, um, you know, a registrar of, of trusteeship um, and trustees would be a welcome step, not least because then the regulator will be able to sort of communicate more effectively with its regulated community. Um, so, yeah, like I suppose uh, better late than never, but it's a bit depressing <laughs> that we're talking about this now. Yes, um, I'm as surprised as you, Darren. It, it, it seems like something that they're, they're almost saying, you know, we, we haven't really been on it for the last 20 years since we were incorporated. <laughs> um, you'd have thought this would be one of the first steps would be to say, hey, we are the pensions regulator. We regulate trust based provision. Who are the trustees? <laughs> yeah, and, um, I, and, and I think to be fair, that um, it's a requirement on the scheme return um, that you you outline, um, you know, who the trustees are, and 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 really, this isn't um, uh, you know aimed at, at bigger schemes um, and well-run schemes, but we do know that there is this tale of um, very very small schemes, um, and are they even doing scheme returns? Um, we know that the regulator is um, struggling to communicate with them about simple things like the value for money test and doing the assessment of against um, other schemes if your assets are below 100 million. Um, so yeah, you really need to understand and be able to communicate with your regulated community, I think is the, the key lesson here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd comment. I mean, I work with a couple of trustee boards who don't have a professional trustee on mm. board, but um, I mean, they operate very well. Um, particularly they work very well in conjunction with the company yep. um, but I think what the you know obviously what professional trustees bring is the experience of other schemes um, so it, you know we can as advisors share information on what, ha what we're doing with other clients etc but I think you know the professional trustee brings that that not only the level of professionalism but the knowledge of, of wide of what's going on in the, the wider world and I yeah. think that's a, that's a benefit. Yeah, and I think um, you know, profession, professional trustee companies versus um, good standards and professionalism in trusteeship often get conflated. Yeah. Um. So it's not just about having someone who's representing a professional trustee company on the board. It's making sure that people have the necessary skills, qualifications, etc., to be able to uh, effectively contribute to it. Um. Just, just on the the, the 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 trustee company point, Rona. Um, is is there a, so? So I totally get that there are benefits of um, sort of cross fertilization of ideas and sharing experience from other schemes. Um, but is there a risk that we could lead ourselves into groupthink and just a sort of one size fits all approach if we don't necessarily have that diversity of thought, not just in terms of individuals, but in terms of, you know, if a trustee company was developing a house view on, say, buyout or something. 
Yeah, I mean, I, th I think there is a risk of that. And I, I must admit, some of the, the trustee boards I work with who have kind of quite vocal member nominated trustees, I think they are hugely valuable. Mm. I mean, I, I've only got one DC scheme that has a sole trustee. Um, and that actually works pretty well because um, before the DB scheme was bought out the, the, and the trustee board agreed with the company that they would move to sole trustee, they agreed that they would set up a member committee. Um, so they have a member committee feeding into the, the sole trustee um, and sort of giving them opinion on things like um, the literature, et cetera, that they're, they're putting out. And, in, and we, one of the guys we've got on that committee um, is in their sort of um, sustainability team. So it's really quite good to get his views on sustainability, on an engagement with the managers and so forth. Yeah. So I think that diversity of thought is is good. Um, I think what you will have um, is obviously you've got advisors involved as well. So um, you, you will have sort of different opinions feeding into companies from professional trustees, firms, from even for pension lawyers and so forth as well. So I, I don't think you're going to get the group think, but, um, you know, who, who knows, who knows? I mean, in DB world and sole trustee, sole trustee is going to be the key thing going forward. Mm. So um, that, you know, it, it's it's quite hard to tell whether whether group think might, might come in there. I think it's unlikely because I think most professional trustees have their own their own views. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, to my my, I think the group question is a really important one. Um, I mean, there's no doubt that the effect of regulation, accounting standards, um, you know, how actuarial valuations are run has made DB schemes basically have two solutions which the government regrets, right? Because, uh, you know, apparently DB schemes should be, uh, you know, holding a little bit more uh, in the UK economy and there's a bit of blowback <laughs> that comes to the UK as a result. Um, so my sense of the value for money regulations is that there's a, a very big risk of groupthink by measuring people's performance against each other and saying, if you're one of the worst performers, we'll knock you out of the system. I mean, that that is just how you create herds. Yeah, um, safety so, numbers. Well, I mean, it, you know, much better to be in the pack than taking the risk of, of trying to lead the pack and, you know, realize that you might fall behind. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's beyond the the, tr the role of the trustees. Um, it is quite generally the role of the, the regulatory environment. You know, however smart Hyman's are and, and other advisors, you know, there are basically, what, six consultants um, and, uh, you know, I've been in that sort of rotating, revolving door of people kind of desperate to work in DC pensions. There's, there's not a huge community of thought outside of, um, outside of the trusts either. And as we make the world smaller and smaller with consolidation, you know, I suspect you're going to get more and more groupthink with the kind of regulations that the government is, is desiring. Um, I guess the critical thing is to make sure that the group thinks better. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a sort of inevitable as we, we you know, the, the, the whole tenor of government regulation is to increase group thinks. So, so let's just make sure that that thought is as good as possible. Mm. Very good. Very good. It takes um, me back to the CAPS survey of pooled pension funds oh, yes. in the, 19, <laughs> the 1980s where nobody wanted to uh, to be outside the pack because they were 
going to get sacked. Um, no. I'm not sure that drove uh, good value for, for members at that time. Before my time, Rona. Before my oh. time. <laughs> Show my age. So, 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 well, that's a beautiful segue into, um, you know, that one of our standard questions that we ask all our guests, which is how you got into pensions. Okay, well, I, I did an economics degree at university and um, came out of that in 1986 thinking, oh, what am I going to do now? Mm. And uh, and I started my career with what at the time was Norwich Union. Yep. And um, I was in the investment team there. And a lot of my time in the early days was actually spent out talking about PEPs and ISAs to, um, or TESAs even in those days, mm. uh, to uh, retail IFAs. And um, gradually sort of moved across into the into the pensions world from there. So um, it, it wasn't by accident, like I think most of your other <laughs> other respondents. Yeah. That, 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 have, that have tends been, to be so, the uh, that yeah. tends to be what people the stock say. answer. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so, so sorry, I didn't didn't uh, agree with that one. <laughs> it was a bit more planned for me. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, um, so I think this is 18, isn't it? This is our 18th interview. So I think we've had one other owner um, who, who was slightly deliberate when thinking about uh, joining the world of pensions, uh, yeah. which was Sophia, uh, who said she didn't want to be an engineer because it was all cold outside. Yeah. <laughs> That's fair enough. Yeah. yeah, well, I had thought about being a lawyer one, at one point in my uh, my um, school days, but um, that kind of went by the wayside. And mm-hmm. I just, God knows what would have been the case if I'd been a lawyer nowadays. <laughs> and um, tell us about uh, Hyman's Robertson. Uh, when did you join them and um, what, how, how did your career evolve during um, your time at Hyman's? Okay, well, I mean, it's it's quite interesting because I've been at Hyman's since 2004. Um, and one of the things that Hyman's um, always says is they want it to be the best job you'll ever have. And is it? And, and it is, absolutely. You couldn't say it anything is. about it, um, could you? Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I, well, but I, I, mean, I mean that. I mean, I've been there since 2004, so that yeah. kind, of, kind of says it all. So, um, I mean, when I first started, uh, a lot of my time was spent actually on the new business side because at that time we were starting to move from um, looking after relatively small to medium-sized DB schemes into the bigger world. And um, they needed a lot of support in terms of tenders and sort of pitches and things like that. Um, And, you know, I I quite enjoyed that. But um, a few years into my career, I spoke to my manager and I said, "Um, I don't think I'm being used in the best way. I think there are things that I could bring to Hyman's that I'm not doing at the moment. Because, you know, I had a history in client relationship management. Um, I enjoy presenting. I enjoy writing. Um, and I wanted to be working with clients again. Um, I wasn't overly keen to do DB. Um, I wanted something that was a bit more straightforward and something that I could make more of an impact with. So back in 2010, um, I was kind of launched into the world of DC uh, and I've never looked back since then. So it's been it's been a really interesting 13 years working in, in DC and it's changed just so much in that time that there's always something new and interesting, which is why I why I love it so much. And, and you said you wanted to do something less complicated. Um, well, know, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I sort of question that. Like, be careful yeah, what you I wish mean, for. <laughs> well, yeah, yes, it is. But, but it, um, I mean, it has become more complex and, and will become more complex 
likes over over the the next few years. But you know, I've been learning as I've as I've gone along. So, um, but as I say, the the focus for me is always about the members. Mm. Um, whenever I, when we work with clients, we use personas a lot. So we look at the the membership, as it were, and and then we say, let's drill down and see what your members actually look like and and that's not just by sort of age and um, gender and things like that we think about what some of their own challenges might be as well so if you're looking at a younger member you know they may be struggling to pay contributions because they're they've got to pay high rent and then somebody getting closer to retirement they they may have priorities elsewhere with their um, elderly parents or things like that so we actually try and think about them as members of the pension scheme rather than just as the membership and I think that helps us focus on the impact of what we do on these real well real people yeah now that is um yeah I think that's really important and um I suppose that, you know, in a single employer trust world, there's a a much um, greater opportunity to be able to do that and to focus down on the characteristics on that on the workforce. Um, How does an organisation like Nest do that, Rona? Well, I think, I mean, you can put it into categories. Mm. Um, I mean, there, there will be different types of member, with it, even within Nest, um, although a lot of them will be sort of minimum auto-enrolment contributions, there will be some that aren't. Yep. Um, and, you know, there'll be different age profiles within there. There'll be different genders. There'll be difference in ethnicity and things like that. So, you know, I think you can still create personas mm. that are that are realistic to what the membership um might might look like and do you think uh, master trust will have the incentive uh, and or appetite to actually use that work because you know most most master trusts at the moment and you know, quite understandably so uh, are a one size fits all um quite commoditized very little sort of segmentation that actually goes on um but do you think that will evolve over time uh, yeah absolutely um i mean i i, I think we've obviously been in, in growth mode in, in Master Trust world until mm. recently. I mean, some, some of the Master Trusts are already thinking this way in terms of segmentation. You've got some of the Master Trusts that allow, say, their own, um, uh, allow employers to have their own investment strategies yeah. and that sort of thing as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, absolutely, I think there will be there will be that move to thinking more about, you know, the people that are actually, you're, you're managing the money for, so yeah absolutely absolutely that's the way forward very good very good Mm. um so an interesting career to date and um you know i've seen you speak and be part of round tables um a number of times rona and you've always been a bit controversial um you say what you think (laughs) so um probably uh about that that, that's a a good time to ask yeah what what a way to tee (laughs) her up yeah yeah, no exactly (laughs) so so what does vfm uh, mean to you, Rona? Well, I think it goes back to what I said a, a minute ago that um, various different members of pension schemes will will value different things, yep. um, and I think that's that's the starting point. And I used to laugh because when we had the value for members assessment, which is is still uh, working in, in the world of um, in, in, in single trust world, we we had this um, thing that the we, you could only add into the value for members assessment what members paid for 
And, mm. and I remember telling somebody a story. I'm, I'm a big rugby fan. Um, and we went across to Munster to, to watch Edinburgh play in Munster. And I paid for my own hotel. I paid for my accommodation. But because there were only six of us going across, um, Edinburgh Rugby gave us the tickets for free. And, and I used this as a story in Value for Members because in, in Value for Members world, I would value my flight because I paid for it. Mm. I'd value my accommodation because I paid for it. But I wouldn't value the ticket because I didn't pay for it. <laughs> and it just, you know, it kind of, it, for me, it kind of sums it up that you know what members are getting is not always um is not always what they value if you if you see if you see what i mean yeah so um i think that yeah i, I mean i think value means different things to different people mm. but you know we must be concentrating on looking for what provides the best outcomes for members over the longer term? And I think, um, you know, what we finally, I think, are starting to see um, in Master Trust world is a move from uh, cost to value. And that, for me, is something that we absolutely need to see uh, in it going forward. So, so just, a just a, a couple of sort of uh, points on that. We had uh, Romy Savova from Pensions Beyond uh, last mm. week. And she talked quite passionately about um, the, you know, the value of people making additional contributions, um, and gave an example of, you know, like if you if you if you put in even small amounts um, extra, um, the impact it can have on end outcomes, you know, um, is potentially quite big. Um, is that the type of stuff that you're talking about, Rona? Um, should we be should we be measuring schemes and employers on the basis of, you know, what they do to to try and get more money into pensions rather than just focusing on, you know, the, the costs and the value once it's within that environment? Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting one, um, Darren, because I think we, you know, we've got a situation at the moment where members pay costs within the scheme. So what they pay in costs, to be honest, is is tiny. I mean, it will have an impact on outcomes, but not that massive um, change that could be seen if you increase contributions. And, you know, I, I go back to the days of the pension quality mark from the PLSA and schemes were, were able to get a rating if they gave a good contribution. So my, you know, my, my view is if you take a scheme that has, um, a say a member pays 5% mm. and the employer pays 5%, I see the 5% that the member is paying as effectively the cost to the member of being part of the scheme. So if that same member works for a company that um, they pay 5% and the employer pays 10%, they're getting a much better potential, well, they're, they're getting a much better outcome. And, the, the, you know, there's no two ways about it yeah. over the longer term. So, you know, should there be a way, even at sort of recruitment stage of, of showing people's pension um, and the contributions the employer is paying uh, on a kind of a not, I won't say red amber green but sort of some, something along those lines that will that will help people to take into account pension contributions and I remember um, I, I did a session a few years ago for um, Harriet Watt University students mm -hmm. my alma mater um, and that was one of the things I talked to them about so you know when they go and look for a job not just to look at the headline salary 
but to look at what the pension contributions are as as well. Um, and as I say, my <laughs> I was saying to to Darren earlier that my my husband has actually just gone for a job, um, and it's slightly less than he was on before, but has quite a chunky pension contribution and you know I, I said to him well you know that it's your total salary that matters mm-hmm. and that's what a lot of people forget and okay it's money they can't get for you know maybe many years in the future but it will have a really big impact on you know how well they can retire no massively massively yeah. um was that free advice for your husband uh, oh. <laughs> absolutely not <laughs> i think i think it's really interesting it's so it, the it's definitely a space that the government has backed away from mm. um partly i guess because it introduced um a sort of minimum level with auto enrollment um so it, it sort of doesn't want i guess the challenge that that's a red level of contributions does it mm. Um, yes. nor the complexity that that might be green for someone close to minimum wage yeah. uh, where state pension is is going to be a huge part of their replacement ratio um, and even darker than red uh, for someone on you know more money than that uh, substantially more money so I guess the government has kind of shied away from thinking about pensions holistically um, the master trusts themselves uh, very generally struggle to have any kind of communications which say you should contribute more because they sit in an employer environment where that might be uh, that might be welcomed or that might be utterly utterly rejected um, and impossible. Um, so I have got one anecdote of a, a master trust who said, um, you know, we've got we've got the literature, um, but uh, and we would naturally kind of feedback to him, to members that they have options to contribute more. Um, but the employer said, don't. So we've had to work out a way to <laughs> to sort of untick various communications boxes. So mm-hmm. so this is quite a potentially quite a controversial topic because we lack that kind of government leadership. Um, and it comes yeah. back to a number of different things that we've we've been talking about in this podcast, Aaron, in terms of we we need some sense of what this thing is meant to be achieving. Right. Um, what is the world of uh, workplace pensions and auto enrollment meant to be targeting? um because you know retailers over to one side uh you know employer contributions matched contributions are to another all of those kind of dimensions are slightly rootless at the moment aren't they yeah i mean it's it's quite interesting if you look at matched contributions as well because um several mm. of my colleagues have been been looking into this at the moment and and they actually think matched contributions may not be fair actually not be a fair way to to have pension contributions and the reason for that is you know if, if you let's go back to a five and five um you and you know the ability to opt down or whatever so you may have two people sitting next to each other one of whom has you know a, a family and lots of financial commitments and the other who has has not so many financial commitments mm-hmm. so the first one can't afford to pay the level that maximizes the the company contribution whereas the the, the second individual can so is it fair that because people can't afford to pay the higher contributions um they get penalized mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, for yeah, me, the, the a, even bigger that, issue. It throws another throws another spanner in the works, but it's you know it's yeah. it's certainly something that we we need to be thinking about. I mean, for me, the even bigger issue is the uh, age discrimination of flat contributions, mm. um, because yeah. young people get so much more from a five and five 
than you know a 60 year old does who's who's just at the the verge of retirement um so we define age discrimination as meaning you've got to give all of your cohorts five and five uh the germans and swiss define age discrimination as you've got to give them an equal amount of income in retirement um so that 60 year old gets like 25 percent and the 18 year old gets seven or eight percent um so the way you define fairness culturally will come into this right so so it, it's just it's we've been lacking this conversation is the big issue yeah so so do we think that the um the, the dwp consultation is is quite partial then in terms of the way it's looking at this um and and i know one of the things i think you wanted to to discuss rona was about sort of proper benchmarks of vfm and you know is vfm in a trust world fit for purpose you know is this just um uh, giving the regulator more power um to be able to scrutinize what goes on within schemes and providers you know is, is that what this is about or you know and and, and if so should it look a lot more holistically and, and be more focused on end outcomes um Yes, absolutely. Outcomes. Sh- I mean, they, they, they say at the beginning of the consultation that, you know, this is a shift towards looking at outcomes. Um, and I really, I really, really hope that it is. Um, and I mean, at the moment, I mean, when we do value for members assessments, we have our own database of information that we, we use. Um, and, you know, generally our, our clients rank pretty well, but they're they're ranking largely against our own clients who are already very well governed schemes. Um, and there's a there's a whole tale, which is it, which really is where the regulator is is going with this, um, who, who you know, as you said, as you said earlier, Darren, that don't even look at, um, you know, value for members or enhanced value for members assessment and wouldn't know how to do it. Um, but I think the other thing that um, we, we need to be starting to do is benchmarking all trust based schemes against master trusts. You know, we, we've got some very big schemes who have now decided that they want to do that. And, and looking at not just cost, but looking at investment offerings, looking at the communications and going back to what you were saying earlier, they're looking at the retirement piece. You know, how do they rank against master trusts? And for me, what that does is it drives up the standards for all those schemes, because if they say, you know, we want to retain the trust based um, model and, you know, quite a, quite a few still do. Um, you know, how can we bring ourselves up and make sure that we're off what we're offering to our members is as good as or, you know, sometimes better than um, they could get in a, in a master trust. So, you know, I, I think that 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 bench, that whole area of benchmarking is something that has to um, has to improve. Um, as I say, we we're doing a lot more work in that area at the moment with clients and they are finding it really valuable. And, you know, we have found where we've done those assessments. It has found, you know, quite often areas that, that need to be looking at and retirement tends to be one of them. Um, so that, as I say, is driving up standards. And that for me is what the value for members should be about. It's it's not, um, you know, it's not necessarily worrying about whether somebody has one basis point higher than, than another mm. on charges, but it's what's that final outcome going to be and how are you supporting your members to get there? So, so just on the, on the, on the charges point, because, um, you know, we, we often come back to this and, um, just just to ask you quite an open question which is you know that there is a sense from a provider perspective that quite often business is won or lost especially in the, the mass market world on the difference between you know a couple of bips here or there 
um, and there's an overemphasis on charges, not just from a regulatory and um, government perspective, but equally it's something tangible that the consultant can say, yes, you know, we've negotiated a two bips reduction in the price or whatever, um, which is much easier to explain than, oh, they offered these retirement options or they do this with their investments. Um, is there a mindset change happening from the the um, the consultant side on this as well, in the sense of moving away from price being a key differentiating factor? Um, well, it's probably not one to ask me because we, it's always been one part of a, an overall uh, review that we do. So mm. we have eight different categories that we look at when um, employers are selecting a master trust. So, you know, that could be um, the reputation, it could be the commitment to marketplace, it could be yeah. investment, yeah. communications, etc. And And we we work with the employer to weight all those areas. Fees is one of them, hmm. um, but we will weight those areas on what they believe is most important. Um, and yes, at the final stage, once you've picked your master trust, that's when we come in and we do we do a bit of negotiation on their behalf. Um, but we have never been ones who will put um, a master or recommend a master trust purely because it's cheap. Hmm. It's always been about it's always been about the the outcomes for members, and I know that that's not necessarily the same across the industry. Yeah. And I think what's been happening is a lot of employers um, have been coming to trustees and saying, you know, we've got this really good deal, and trustees, and if they're not being well advised, are just going, oh yes, that looks really good. Yeah. But I had a, a situation recently where the employer came and said, oh, we've got this this great deal set up. We'd like you to move the, the assets across. And we did some modeling for the, the trustee. And we said to them, well, you can move it across, but your projected member outcomes are 10% less in the master trust than they are in the current trust-based scheme, right. which then led to obviously further discussions about bespoke strategies potentially and, and mm. things like that. But that's the kind of advice that trustees need um, before signing off a, a move to a master trust. It's not just about cost. It's got to be about outcomes. I'm sorry, I've said that bit 16 times already. <laughs> no, no, no. no, no. That's, uh, well, it's a point yeah. well made. It's yeah. a point well made. Uh, can I come back to... So, and I, 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 this question has no bias to it, but can you just explain to us uh, why a single employer trust can be better valued than a master trust? I think it's it's really important to kind of explore that, right? Okay, well, um, I mean, first of all, the single employer trust can uh, appoint the best of class in each area. When mm. you when you point, appoint a master trust, you're appointing one provider to to give you all the services so so that's one thing i mean i i come down even to little things like um expression of wish so in a single employer scheme you will no doubt get uh, information through to you about um where members have died you can look at their expression of wish forms if you don't have that you've probably got a really good process for finding out and actually the money will go most likely to the right person at the end if you're in a master trust with millions of members that is outsourced so i think you can probably have more confidence in a single trust scheme that if a member does die your, your money's going to the money's going to the, the the person who um should really be getting it so you know there's quite a number of, of things um bespoke communications 
you know, a lot of the master trusts just provide you with very generic uh, communications, unless you're a, you're a particularly big scheme. So, you know, you can do a lot more in terms of segmenting membership, specific member communications within a single trust scheme. And um, there's also some single trust schemes out there that are bigger than master trusts. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, four or five, six billion. <laughs> so, you know, they can they can negotiate really good deals as well. So, you know, there is, for my, to my mind, and I would say this, having recently been appointed a head of trustee, a DC trustee <laughs> at Hyman's, but I think there is definitely still a marketplace for schemes mm-hmm. staying trust. Um, I'm, I'm not saying that it's right for, for all schemes. And I think, you know, there, there are definitely schemes out there that would be better off in master trust. But I think, you know, we shouldn't, um, forget about what we're leaving behind in in a single trust scheme, um, if we do if we do move to master trust. Yeah, yeah exactly. there's, a, there's a sense. Sorry, Darren. So there's a sense in the in the consultation and the general push of government regulation that consolidation is basically the only answer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really worth hearing the kind of uh, at least the narrative of like let's take this at the right pace. Uh, from you, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, I've worked in um, a different consultancy, but in a similar role, dealt with those those single employer trusts. Mm-hmm. And having been on the master trust side as well, I mean, it, it, the, the bespoking and the care and attention that you can get in that kind of single employer trust world, I think is really important to highlight. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, having worked in a place that introduced personas um, really in 20, 2009 and, and through to 11, I, I ran personas for the Barclays staff and the communications, um, essentially telling them to pick up more matched contributions. I don't think you could get that service now, 12 years later in, in a master trust. So there's a number of those sorts of features that we just can't lose sight of. And I guess question to you, Rona, and uh, I don't want to put you on the spot, but uh, I don't know to the extent you've been through the consultation, but uh, are those are those kind of lost in translation? Are they just, you know, are they points that we all had to put in? With it? There was various points that Darren and I said, look, there's a question missing here. Let's write, yes. <laughs> let's write a question number. Is that the kind of, are they just lost here? Yeah, I, I think to some extent they are because the, the agenda is to consolidate. Um, mm. And uh, yeah, I think I absolutely think there's lots. I, I, I wrote lots in the margin um, when I was reading through the <laughs> consultation um, of things that they, they hadn't even uh, they hadn't uh, consulted on. So yeah, I think mm. I think that's that's true. I don't think, um, um, I, I, think and I, the, I don't think Nicole and I would ever publish our notes of the consultation, would we? Nicole? <laughs> uh, no, no. Well, uh, it will be up to Des, won't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He may publish them. Um, no, I mean I mean our private notes. Not, oh not, no, not, no, not no, the no. podcast, but not the podcast. The podcast is already out there. So, so Rona, we actually submitted our response via a podcast. Oh gosh! Oh, there you go. Very, very twenty twenty first century. Yeah. Um, there, there was one other point I wanted wanted to make in terms of, in terms of the value, and that is in relation to the single. Uh, in, sorry, it's in relation to um, employers who appoint a master trust. Hmm. Um, or a or a GPP or whatever vehicle they do, and you know we we must make sure that the same doesn't happen as happened in GPP world. And just to give you give you an example on that, um, we were appointed recently to um, a client who we were advising the DB scheme, and they said. Uh, our DB consultant said to them, well, what, what have you got in DC? Because the DB scheme is closing to future accrual. Oh, we've got this, 
stakeholder holder arrangement with XYZ that we probably haven't looked at for, for many, many years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we went, we, we were now helping them as an employer to look at what they have, look at the charges, look at the service that they're getting, look at the communications. So, you know, you've got lots and lots of GPPs out there with really high charges and really low service. And, you know, I've, I've talked before about the crocodile's jaws, which is where you, you've got large employers who are being well advised by people, you know, people, firms like ourselves, um, who are constantly looking at the services that the Master Trust is, is providing um, or the GPP provider is, is providing, challenging on the fees. Um, and, and then you've got, you're going to have a raft of smaller employers where the provider has no incentive in, in many cases to give them all those. Now that, that's not, not all master trusts operate like that, but I think you will very much get that. And you've already got the jaws a little bit open, but that could get even wider over time. And mm. I think the importance of having employer uh, governance committees for outsourced pension arrangements is absolutely vital. Because mm. otherwise that, that those jaws are just gonna get bigger and bigger over time. Yeah, so, so, so just on that, um that that's that's fair enough if um the employee is big enough um uh big enough to devote the resource to to put in that governance committee and quite often what we end up doing is we end up talking about sort of bigger schemes um rather than the 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 small employers And 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 the and the value for money framework has to work equally for small employers so how do we how do, how do we bridge the two, Rona? What there could potentially be a requirement on all employers to um, review the value for money in their scheme on a say a five yearly basis or something yeah. like that. Yeah, and and how do you think the employer lobby would react to that? Because because I agree because I think um, you know there's lots of requirements on employers um, to auto enrol scheme. Um, make the minimum contributions, make the declaration of compliance, all of that really good auto-enrolment stuff. Yeah, yep. um, There's very little um, requirement on employers to look at the quality of the scheme or the suitability of the scheme. Yep. You know, It just has to be an auto-enrolment qualifying scheme. Do, do you think that will need to change over time? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's we need to get into the mindset of employers thinking of this as money that they're paying in and what are they getting for it and you know the way the way i describe it is in no other part of your business would you put you know tens or hundreds of thousands or even millions of pounds a year into something you didn't look at on an ongoing basis and i think you know it should be something that you know they see contributions going in what are they getting back for that are they getting appreciation amongst the membership probably not members probably don't even know they're even in the scheme let alone anything else so they the the employer is paying out this cost but not actually getting anything back for it and i think if we can change the mindset into you know what what are we getting for the, our pension spend that really makes a difference and yeah. you know to be honest you know there's a lot of controversy about the um the lifetime allowance and um i actually think and here i'm out there saying it that it's good that the lifetime allowance has been abolished even if it is only temporarily because what it will do <laughs> is it will allow um fds and hrds back into dc schemes and once they get back into DC schemes, they will start looking at their DC schemes a little bit more closely and going, actually, this isn't offering value 
So for me, you know, I, I, um, it, that was not a, it was not a political comment in any way, but it was just something that I feel quite strongly on that the fact that a lot of HRDs and FDs have been forced out of pension funds, mm. they become less interested in what they're offering more yeah. widely. Mm. No, that's a point that the um, NAPF used to make quite strongly when it was the NAPF and I was on the receiving end of that um, when I was a <laughs> Treasury official. Um, uh, back in uh, between 2007 and uh, 2010. Um, really conscious of time. We're, we're pretty much up yep. on time at the moment. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to cover, Rona? Um, have we missed anything? We've probably missed a lot, but is there any, any, <laughs> any burning thing that you want to, to leave our listeners with? No, I, I, ju- I just think that, you know, I'd, um, think of outcomes. That, 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 would be my, that would be my one um, ask of people, whether they are, you know, employers, whether they're master trust trustees or whether they're trustees of, of single trust schemes, always focus on outcomes. If you focus on outcomes, you won't go far wrong. Yeah. Mm. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Rona. That was that was really interesting. Um, oh, thank you. And uh, I hope your weather comes to you, Darren. <laughs> yeah, it's looking a bit sunnier. Uh, yeah, well, it's clouded <laughs> over here now. Uh, it, oh no, oh no. We've all got we've all got the clouds, um, but maybe yeah. they'll part for one of us or all of us. That's something to hope for. Um, so, Rona, thank you very much for that. Okay. Um, thank you. We are virtual again today. Uh, um, partly because of my uh, holiday to France, but it's also a great opportunity to talk to you in Edinburgh as well. Um, so we're not in our usual pod, but uh, thanks as ever to DG Publishing uh, for hosting us when we are there in London. Um, and we're looking forward to their DC Strategic Summit on Monday the 15th. So uh, if you're listening to this on Friday, it will be on the Monday coming up. Um, so uh, do book your place if you're not going. Indeed, indeed. Um, although it might be too late by then. <laughs> well, just email us. Yeah, Let us yeah. know. We'll, we'll, and, uh, we'll, we'll see if it. we can get you in. Yeah. Um, and and just a couple of things to plug from my perspective. I'm um, speaking at a Scottish Widows Advisor event um, on the 18th of May, um, joining a panel with um, Robert Cochran, um, who is a great guest of, of this podcast. So looking forward to that. And also going to be chairing a panel on illiquid investments at PMA PMI aspects live on the 21st of june um are you out and about at all rona any anytime soon are you speaking at anything um i don't think i'm speaking at anything but i'm i'm down in london next week and then i'm off on holiday to faro in portugal for a week so um, very nice that will very be nice. that will be nice <laughs> very, very good and i hope you got value for money from your from your travel agent uh, absolutely <laughs> <laughs> so thanks very much rona um, another fantastic episode um just to remind um our listeners you can find us on your podcast platform of choice and you can always get in touch at vfmpensions at gmail.com uh, Rona, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, next week, we've got Brian Henderson from Mercer. So very much looking forward to speaking to him uh, about DC. He, he wrote a piece, didn't he, Darren, for professional pensions saying we're thinking about value for money wrong. So we're going to be yep. exploring all of that. We're going to be exploring all that. So that should be another um, interesting contribution to the debate. Excellent. And that's what this is about. It is. It is. Uh, we're definitely getting some themes, aren't we? We're definitely yeah. getting some themes. Yeah. Um, yeah like this all wrong is the kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> so until next time <laughs> it's goodbye from me it's goodbye from me and rona goodbye from me <laughs> <laughs>